Good morning. I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here. It's great to get to bring the word this morning. We are uh, continuing through our series in 1 Corinthians, and so we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up and follow along. It'll also be up here on the screen. You can follow along up there. And if you are physically able to stand, would you mind standing to honor the reading of God's word? First Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that by your divine power, you have granted to us all things that pertain to life in godliness, through the knowledge of you who called us to your own glory and excellence, by which you have granted to us your precious and very great promises. So I pray this morning that you would help us to see those precious and great promises anew. Help us, Lord, to remember where we have forgotten. To behold you in your beauty and your glory and your splendor. To set our hearts on you in adoration and worship again this morning. Father, would you work through the power of of your word through the power of your spirit in spite of my weaknesses and insufficiencies. And would Jesus be lifted high to the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, there are few experiences more nerve-wracking 
than being lost. When I was 18 years old, I had the extraordinary privilege of getting to travel to Europe with my, my dear friend, who's also named Ryan, which just keeps it confusing. Um, and so Ryan and I got to spend a couple of weeks traveling in London and Paris and Rome, I mean, it was, and it was amazing. But towards the end of our time in Rome, I was coming down with a virus. I was feeling really puny. And we were also uh, running low on cash. So we decided to head back to the hotel. Ryan was going to let me get some rest, and he was going to run up to the McDonald's that was just up the street from our, uh, our hotel. You know, that was all we had money for. That's the most American thing, travel to Rome and eat McDonald's. Uh, at least it's an 18-year-old thing. But so after he left, I, I fell asleep. I remember I was watching a, a soccer match on the TV, and it was about 30 minutes or so into the, into the match. And I fell asleep, and I woke up, and I looked at the TV. and looked at the first thing I looked at was the clock, and it said, you know, it's about 60 minutes or so into the game. So you know, they finished the first half, had halftime, 15 minutes or so in. So I was like, he's going to be back any minute. And then I looked more closely at the TV, and I realized that the jerseys were different colors. And then I, I looked and I saw that these were different teams playing. The entire first game had finished, halftime, the entire second half. A new game had started. They had played the entire first half, had halftime, and were now half, you know, a third of the way into the second half. I it must have been out for like two or three hours asleep. And Ryan was nowhere to be found. And this McDonald's was like five minutes down the road. So I started to just panic. I was like, I have no idea where, where is he? Is he okay? Is, is he safe? Uh, and what do I do? Now, remember, this is like just after the Jurassic period. Back in 2005, this was before I, there were smartphones, uh, but at least before I had a smartphone. I don't think they existed yet. Before uh, GPS on your phone, you know, before Google Translate, all of that stuff. Uh, and I, I didn't know a single person, a single other person in Rome. Couldn't speak a lick of Italian, and I just sat there stunned. I was like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I mean, I guess I'll go talk to the, the front desk and see if we can get in touch with the authorities or something, try to find Ryan. So I, after a couple of minutes sitting there trying to put together a plan, the, the door into the room opens up, and Ryan walks in, holding a bag of what was, at one point, our warm dinner, and his eyes were just as big as saucers. And he looked at me, and the very first thing he said was, that was the scariest night of my life. <laughs> and he went on to explain that he had gotten on the bus, went down to McDonald's just fine, you know, got the food. 20 minutes or so, was coming back. Uh, but he didn't realize you had to push the button on the bus in order for it to stop, right? And so he forgot to do that. The bus drove past the stop. Because of where the hotel was near the highway and stuff, he couldn't just, like, stop at the next stop. So he's like, I'll just ride the bus. It'll do a loop, you know, and it'll take me back. And the bus kept going and going, and people kept getting off, you know, until finally he was the last person on the bus, and they were, he was all the way like on the outskirts of the city. And the bus driver stops, and he opens the door and just points out. <laughs> and Ryan's like, 
what do I do? <laughs> you know, with the language barrier, he couldn't really communicate. But thankfully, the bus driver was able to say, bus, bus 11, wait here. And so Ryan gets off, and he sits out on this dark street. There's a single street light. It's like something in, like, a horror movie, you know, like single street light. There's a junkyard across the street, and he's just like, this is it. It's been a good run, you know. I had a good life. Um, and he, he sat there for 45 minutes waiting for this bus to show up, just praying the whole time, you know, Lord, please let this bus come. And then finally, off in the distance, he sees a pair of headlights coming closely, closer and closer towards him. Bus 11, praise the Lord. So he gets on, rides it back to the station, finds the right bus, and then he said that he stood next to the bus driver <laughs> to tell him, this is my stop, this is my stop, I want to get off here. <clears throat> so he got off, he came in, you know, opened the door, and uh, we laughed. We laughed the whole night over some very cold hamburgers and some melted ice cream, and it was amazing. You know, we've been looking at this letter, 1 Corinthians, and in this letter, Paul is writing to a church that has lost its way. There were all kinds of problems within the church in Corinth. There was confusion about a variety of theological issues. There was false teaching happening, manipulation from different parties. There was sexual immorality that was going unaddressed. There was neglect of the poor and unjust administration of the Lord's Supper. There were all kinds of problems, but perhaps the issue that distressed Paul the most, at least the one that he, he starts the letter with and he spends the better part of three chapters on, was the division within the church. The Corinthian church was being torn apart by factionalism. Factions had arisen in the church around these different ministers, around these different spiritual leaders. Some claimed to, to follow Paul, some claimed to follow Apollos, some claimed to follow Cephas, and then there were those who were better than everyone who said they just followed Christ. And it was ripping the church apart. Now Paul, in this letter, is, is working to correct this, to bring unity, to bring harmony, to restore peace within this church. And in this passage, he puts his finger on some of the root issues that have led to this destructive behavior. And the bottom line is that the people of God had forgotten the work of God. The people of God had forgotten the work of God. The reason there was division, the reason there was infighting and bickering and distrust, the reason there were broken relationships is because the people of God had forgotten the work of God. They'd lost their way. And so Paul's chief aim in this passage is simple. Remember the work of God. Remember the work of God. And church, that's my prayer for us this morning. Oh, that we would remember the mighty work of God. What a forgetful people we are. How easily distracted we can be. We can see him move and empower and wonders and change lives and bring freedom. And yet, how often do we forget what he's done?
might it be that we remember deeply, profoundly, personally, this morning, the work of God. So I want to focus on three things to remember this morning. First is to remember the generosity of God. You know, the apostle uh, starts with a simple exhortation, brothers and sisters included here, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Now, when we think about calling today, we tend to associate that with vocation, right? We think about the combination of, of profession and passion. It's that intersection. That's our calling. We're looking for the thing that we're gifted at, that we love doing, that gives us a sense of satisfaction we really enjoy doing, right? And we go through this process of self-discovery to find out what our, our calling is. And, you know, that's a great thing to talk about. It's another subject. But that's not what Paul has in mind here with this word calling. He's not thinking about our work. Rather, he's thinking about God's work. That is, by calling, he means their initial invitation to come to God. And specifically, he wants them to consider not just the fact that they were called to follow Christ, but the condition in which they were called. He said, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were of noble birth. He's asking, when you first heard the invitation of the gospel, what was your social status? Were you impressive? Were you influential? Were you of nobility? He said, no, at least not many of you, maybe a few, but not many. And yet, the God of all the universe still called you. He did not call you because of your social status. He did not call you because of your impressiveness or your influence or your heritage. He called you in spite of that, even though you had little of it. And he did it deliberately. Three times he says, God chose, God chose, God chose the weak, the foolish, the nothings of this world according to his sovereign will and purpose. Why is Paul emphasizing this so much? Simply for this reason. Because the invitation to come to God is contingent on you recognizing that there's nothing you bring to the table in your salvation. There's nothing that you bring to the table. We do not deserve it. And the sooner we get comfortable with that, the the closer we get to the kingdom of God, right? And Jesus illustrated this principle with a parable, the parable of the Pharisee and, and the tax collector. He said to some of those who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus 
said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here you have one man, a Pharisee, who's high social status. He's influential. He's well-educated. He's religiously devout. He's esteemed by all. And then, on the other hand, you have a tax collector, one who was considered by his people a traitor because he helped the oppressors for coin. He would have been of the lowest social status. He would have been considered an outcast amongst his people and generally considered an apostate. He'd renounced the faith for money. And yet, shockingly, Jesus says in the story that it is the tax collector who leaves the temple justified before God because he's aware of his need for God's mercy and the other man isn't. And of course, the, the tragic irony in all of that is that the very thing that the Pharisee thinks makes him acceptable to God is the very thing that keeps him from God. There's nothing that you or I have to offer to God except ourselves. There's nothing that we bring to the table. No status, no achievement, no moral record warrants salvation. It is from first to last a gift of grace. And that is the remarkable, unfathomable, immeasurable generosity of God to his people. And when we forget the reality of God's generosity, it has destructive consequences. That's precisely what was happening in Corinth. The people had begun to measure themselves by their spiritual leaders and who they were connected with rather than their acceptance from God. That then became a source of pride, which led to boasting, which led to factions and led to division. You know, we are no less susceptible to this temptation as our brothers and sisters of the past. Is it possible that some of the division that we see in the American church right now is a result of gradually forgetting the depth of God's generosity to us? Self-justification through our performance, our involvement in church, how much we're doing, how engaged we are, the rigor with which we maintain our spiritual disciplines, whatever, you name it. These and a multitude of other practices can take something that's, that's good, like service or community or spiritual disciplines, and distort them into a source of pride and self-justification, which gives birth to comparison and judgmentalism, which leads to gossip, which leads to damaged relationships and factions and division. When we forget the generosity of God, we naturally resort back to justifying ourselves, which always leads to pride. And the proud heart must compare itself to others. But when we remember the generosity of our God, it cultivates in us a humble spirit and a deep and sincere love for others.
when we consider our calling, when we remember our estate apart from God, it changes our attitude from pride and comparison to humility and compassion. It humbles us before God because what do we have to boast about? But it also humbles us before others. Because now we see or we remember again for the first time in a long time that we are unworthy, that we are undeserving, that we have no reason to be proud. The only thing that we're justified in is our shame. And so there's no capacity for comparison or self-justification. We are only accepted because God has been gracious to us, just as he's been gracious to others. How are you doing at remembering God's generosity. came across this uh, story from Wayne Cordero about David Livingston, who was the, the great missionary explorer in, uh, in Africa in the 19th century. And uh, Wayne Cordero and, and another pastor tell this, this incident of Livingston's life that illustrates why we need to be thankful for what God has done. It says, David Livingston was eager to travel into Central Africa to preach the gospel. On one occasion, the famous 19th century missionary and explorer arrived at the edge of a large territory that was ruled by a tribal chieftain. According to tradition, the chief would come out and meet him there. And Livingston could go forward only after an exchange was made. The chief would choose any item of Livingston's personal property that caught his fancy and keep it for himself while giving the missionary something of his own in return. So Livingston had few possessions with him, but at their encounter, he, he spread out all that he had on the ground, his clothes, his books, his watch, and even the goat that provided him with milk. You see, he had chronic stomach problems, he, and so he couldn't drink the, the local water. To his dismay, the chief took the goat and in return, the chief gave him a carved stick, shaped like, shaped like a walking stick. And Livingston was, was disappointed, right? He began to gripe to God about what he viewed as a simple walking cane. What could it do for him compared to the goat that kept him well? Then one of the local men explained, that is not a walking cane. It is the king's own scepter. And with it, you will find entrance into every village in our country. The king has honored you greatly. And he was right. God opened up Central Africa to Livingston. And as successive evangelists followed him, there were wave upon wave upon wave of conversions and the spread of the gospel. Are there ways that we have forgotten the immensity of what God, our King, has given us? His work in our life. His invitation to come to Him to receive mercy. His, his tenderness, His kindness, His compassion to our souls. If you notice a drift there, a dullness, a fogginess, I invite you this morning to consider your calling again. Remember back to when Christ first broke into your life. Remember vividly your estate before him. Reflect on how precious that message of the gospel first was. 
and ask God to renew your appreciation for his generosity to you, that your heart would overflow with humility and gratitude and charity. Second, so we remember the generosity of God. Second, let's remember the sufficiency of Christ. The second truth that, that Paul reminds the Corinthians of is the testimony of God. He says, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wants a Corinthian church to remember the message that they first heard when he came to them. It was not a message of the, the sophists. It was not the message of rhetorical flourishes and elevated oratory and this emphasis on, on betting your life all for a price, right? It was simply the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was what Paul preached. That was what they believed, and that was what changed their lives. So why now had the Corinthian church become so obsessed with the so-called wisdom of this world? Why were they dividing over who baptized them or what camp they were in or the, the profound insights of their spiritual leaders or the public speaking gifts that their leaders had? Why? Because they had forgotten. They had forgotten the sufficiency of Christ. And when we forget the sufficiency of Christ, we perilously pursue substitutes. You know, maybe we look for alternatives like the Corinthians, we, perhaps we turn loose of the essentials of the gospel because we've grown more fascinated by something else. You know, that can be overt, like disconnecting from or deprioritizing our engagement with a, a church because we want to spend our time on other things. But it can also be more subtle than that. You know, we consider our consumption of digital products on a weekly basis. All the streaming services, all the apps, all the social media, all of that stuff. How does that compare to the spiritual inputs in our life? And what might that difference reveal about what we are functionally looking to for life and fulfillment and joy? So maybe we look to alternatives. Maybe we look for embellishments. And I say this knowing that this is probably the one that makes me sound the most have the potential to, to be the most crotchety here. But, you know, this is some additions to give some real pizzazz to the message. Can someone really come to Christ without a full laser light show? Can someone encounter the Holy Spirit without the fog machine? And so we make our church services as exciting and as relevant as possible to try to be on par with a Taylor Swift concert or something. And along with that, we hunt for the most charismatic and dynamic spiritual leaders, right? Maybe we excuse character yellow flags or some problematic philosophies of ministry in the name of influence and kingdom impact. And we wonder why the watching world looks on baffled. Or worse, they walk out the door. Because we espouse a conviction of orthodoxy, but seemingly worship at the altar of pragmatism. 
So maybe we look for embellishments, or maybe, maybe we look for shortcuts. If there's resistance to the message, maybe we just shave off some of the hard edges. Perhaps we ignore the, the controversial bits, like the wrath of God against our wickedness, or the reality of hell. Maybe we, we soften the uncomfortable parts, like all this business about sin and repentance and holiness, that without holiness, no one will see God. And we just focus on the aspects of Christian doctrine that are real, really palatable to modern listeners. We function like, like we're hunting for these secret passageways that allow us to live within God's kingdom but bypass all of the unpopular parts of belonging to him. We live like, like Bruno from Encanto. In the end these substitutes are ultimately empty. We so badly need to remember that the message of Jesus Christ alone is sufficient to save souls and change lives. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is the true and greater wisdom we search for the fullest revelation of God himself. When we aimlessly search for fulfillment in the, the endless scroll or the connection online or the next achievement or the bottle, he is what our souls are aching for. In Christ, we are righteous. Our sin is wiped away. Our guilt is lifted off of our achy hearts. Our shame is covered. We stand before God accepted and forgiven and clean because of him. In Christ, we are sanctified. Like the instruments in the temple, we are dedicated for a holy purpose. We're set apart not to live for the pursuits of this world, but to the pursue the kingdom of God. He came to make fishermen into fishers of men, to make master craftsmen into craftsmen of the master, to take entrepreneurs and turn them into kingdom builders, to take caregivers and make them Ministers of mercy. Do you realize that your calling is so much greater than your vocation? He has called you to himself and given you a new identity and a renewed purpose. He has set you apart for himself, and in him we are sanctified. And in Christ, we are redeemed. We're set free from the bondage of sin. The change that, that bound us to patterns of rebellion against God are broken off. You're released from the prison of debt. And for the first time in your life, you journey out beyond the walls of that prison and get to take in the warmth of the sunshine and feel the cool breeze and breathe in the refreshing air of spiritual freedom. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know that the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough for life and liberty without alternatives, 
without embellishments that he is powerful to heal the sick, to restore the broken, to set free the captive, to forgive the unforgivable, to make the dead alive. That is our Savior. Do we believe that he is sufficient? Or have we forgotten? One of the, my favorite songs right now uh, by Maverick City, Sufficient for Today. There will be storms that won't move out of the way, and trials will come that only test our faith. What I've learned about your favor, your mercy, and your grace is they go on forever, and they're sufficient for today. His grace, his mercy is sufficient for us. You know, we just marked the anniversary, the 22nd anniversary of the terrorist attack in 9-11. And as as clearly as I'm standing here before you today, I recall the events of that morning, probably like many of you, if you were old enough at the time. I remember walking into class. I remember seeing the pictures on the television screen of the plane hitting the building, images of the Pentagon, images in Virginia. the distress, the unsettledness, the fear, the uncertainty of what was going on. And perhaps most moving of all of those images was the pictures of the people streaming out of the building while the firefighters and the policemen and the medics ran past them inside. They climbed up the stairwells to try to rescue those who were in danger. And they gave their lives to save their fellow man. They demonstrated heroism, bravery, and ultimate love. And so too is the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that of perfect Heroism, perfect bravery, perfect love. It's a story of a God who willingly took on flesh and entered into this world and went to death in our place. He was sacrificed so that we would be spared. He was forsaken so that we would be forgiven. He was crucified so that we would live now and for eternity with him. He is sufficient. He's sufficient. Finally, and very briefly, we remember the power of the Spirit. You know, when Paul proclaimed this message, he said, he said, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. If we operate in the wisdom of man, we depend on our own abilities, our own strengths, and all the limitations of our own persuasiveness. When we forget the power of the Spirit, we rely upon ourselves. But when we remember the power of the Spirit, we rely upon the one true living God. 
His Spirit is at work in you. It's the power of the Spirit that will change your heart. It's the power of the Spirit that will transform your life, your desires, your ambitions, your values. It's the power of the Spirit that will meet you in your exact place of need and provide for you there. And it's the power of the Spirit that will give you the words to say to minister to others. Catherine Butler wrote in an article this week a review of a book that was about, the the book is about caring for those with dementia. And Catherine shares a little bit of her own story in this article. And she says this, every week I visit my friend Violet, whose name has changed, at the memory care center she calls home. And I always find her in the same spot, on a couch in the common area. Sometimes she's participating in a song or a game involving a balloon and a fly swatter. At other times, she's just staring into space. And I greet her with a gentle touch on the arm and an enthusiastic hello. And I'm grateful if she returns my smile. The glints of recognition and affection I'd seen for years faded away months ago. Violet thinks I'm a nice staff member with a Bible and no longer remembers that she has no family, that I became her source of daily support years ago. Nor does she remember her dog, her pastor, her friends from the church she attended for two decades, or how she and her late husband would pick blueberries at the local farm. Her world has shrunk to the bright white walls of the memory care center with its continuous soundtrack of 50s tunes playing in the background. Her reality is the present moment. Yet during each visit, tears of joy missed my eyes because even in the fog of dementia, Violet can recall one thing. After I read Psalm 23, a passage she once knew by heart but now receives with a slight furrow of her brow, I hold her hand and I pray the Lord's Prayer with her. And every time, my dear sister in Christ, my friend who no longer knows me and can barely speak, mumbles this prayer along with me. Violet has forgotten much of her past and can't process her future, but in some wordless, shadowy part of her brain, she remembers that she belongs to God. Oh, that we would remember the work of God, the generosity of God, the sufficiency of Christ, the power of his spirit, And that in our remembering and trusting and clinging to him, that he would make us a people who labor to help others know and remember his work for them to the end of our days. Amen.